0: You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Two thousand years ago, one week from today, what we would call Holy Week, one week from today, last Sunday, Jesus triumphantly enters the city riding on a donkey of peace. On Monday, Jesus enters the temple and flips tables on the injustices brought on by religious greed and power. On Tuesday, Jesus goes back to the temple and is challenged by leaders in a debate over the meaning of Scripture, and uh, Jesus wins. On Wednesday, Jesus is anointed by Mary and Bethany. On Thursday, Jesus washes His disciples' feet, shares a last supper with them, and is betrayed by a friend and arrested. On Friday, Jesus is crucified, and on Saturday, Jesus lays in a tomb, buried and dead with his disciples and his family in lament, wondering if everything they had believed and given themselves to for the last three years was just a lie. But then the first day of the week comes, the first day of the week that is Sunday, the first day of the week where things begin to change, a beginning, and we call it Easter. It's the day that Jesus would prove that it wasn't a lie at all. It's a day that begins a new creation, see. It's a day that changes everything. Because just as much as the body of Jesus rests on Saturday that reminds us that God once in creation rested on Saturday, the body of Jesus that was risen and begins new creation is when things change. Everything is supposed to be different now. That's how the Christian story goes. There are lots of alternative stories to live into. There are lots of different narratives for which you could give your life to, but the Christian story is that Jesus couldn't stay dead. That the power of God's love was unleashed into the world, and for Easter, for Easter, the Easter story for Christians is that that we believe that there's a different kind of life now available to us because God's reign and His power and His love is at work. There's a new power at work now in the world. Death no longer has power over us. Fear no longer has power over us. God has unleashed the love That is so powerful that the world would never be the same. Our lives would never be the same. And if you think that I'm making this stuff up, then read about the Christians in the other side of the world who get blown up for their faith, but who unashamedly and fearlessly go and press on in their faith and gather in buildings knowing they could be blown up because they know that you could blow up the body, but you can't blow up the life because Jesus has risen and he's given life and that life is theirs and they have nothing to fear. It's a different world for them. And it could be our world because it's the same story. It's the same story. It's been going on for 2,000 years. And those of us that have confessed that, that Jesus is risen king share in God's life. And we've committed to a new understanding of the story, a new understanding of life, a new understanding of love, a new understanding of power. This power that the Christian story teaches now resides in God's people through the presence of God in the Holy Spirit. And it's a power of the Spirit that is expressed as love and joy and peace and kindness, rather than the power in the world that is expressed in fear, anxiety, violence, and just meanness. It's the presence of God's Spirit that reminds us as we belong, that we belong to this future day of God's glory that begins actually now where we belong to a different day and a different rule, a different reign, a different power, a different view of life, and that we belong to a different kind of movement, a movement of love and peace and kindness and a, a movement of hope that has actually the power to subvert and subsist and to stand beneath and against all other alternative sort of powers and the fear and the violence and all of the anxiety and exhaustion and, frank, frankly, just the, the meanness that exists in the world. But, but then I'm thinking, like every Easter, it never fails in Holy Week every time, then I can't help but wonder, then if this is true, why do I feel the same? Like, why is it we still feel the same? Why do I feel the same spirit of meanness that can come out of me, this sort of anxiety, this sort of fear, this sort of bent towards supporting violence against those that I don't care for, that I feel threaten me? Why is it that that if Easter happened, many of us at any given point feel the same as if Easter didn't? Like, why are so many of us still fearful, anxious, supportive of violence, and sometimes just plain mean? And I got to thinking: for me, maybe it's because there is a contradiction really at work in the world, and it's a contradiction of the powers of the world, and that, that are still a part of me, and the power of the Easter Confession. And it's a, it's a power that comes in the form of a contradiction because I give a lot of my time, and maybe you do too, we, we have a tendency to give a lot of our time to the daily news and the social media and the heavy conversation that just kind of lulls us in to this sort of lullaby of anxiety and fear and violence and meanness. And yet, Easter stands as a story that reveals all of those things for what they are, empty. So, I don't know about you, but when I look at society, it seems like we live in a society where we call evil good and good evil, where we mistake darkness for light and light for darkness, where we call bitter sweet and sweet bitter where we think war leads to peace, and peace to war. And then we hear the stories where they tell us that we should love with caution and restraint, that that we should love with a sort of self-protecting love, with boundaries and limits. They tell us that we should love only those we have determined are worthy of our love. And to help us do all this, to help us make this decision we find that our society seems irreversibly categorized between labels and classes and races and genders and sexual preferences and other identity markers. And even the church sometimes has bought into this idea. And all these categories and stories, they result in this sense of fear and anxiety and injustice and violence. But then there's Easter. There's this day of the year where I come head to head with the primal confession of my own faith in this God who would put skin on, pursue humanity, and that same humanity that would shout, save us, save us, would shout, crucify, and put Him on the cross and say, we don't want what you have to give because it costs us more than we would want to give. and, And yet, then three days later, be raised to demonstrate that all the things that he said and all the things that he did have to be reckoned with. They can't just easily be denied. See, what I find is that Easter awakens us. Say awakens us. It awakens us from the apathy to show us that in in resurrection a new kind of power and love and hope has been unleashed and once you encounter it things are supposed to be different it reminds me that that i've encountered this jesus where there are other forms of life and the other forms of love and the other forms of power and the other forms of hope have been revealed and judged for what they are and that is empty it's why the apostle paul wrote in ephesians chapter 5 verse 13 this he said everything exposed by the revelation light is made visible for what makes every visible is light therefore it is said read this with me awake sleeper and rise from the dead and christ will shine on you in other words easter becomes a time to wake up where we actually are supposed to wake up from the lullabies of fear and anxiety and violence and division and just meanness that go on in our society that actually go on in our hearts to wake up and rise from the dead to actually have a resurrection within ourselves we're no longer just lulled to sleep. We wake up. We wake up and remember that Jesus was broken so that we could be made whole. That Jesus was reviled so that we could be redeemed. I mean, that's the cross and the resurrection. That Jesus was rejected so that we could be reconciled back to God. That Jesus was, took on death so that we could take on true life. That Jesus accepted hatred, even our hatred, so that we could be accepted in God's love. Jesus was forsaken and abandoned, so that no matter what the other narratives and stories and powers tell us, we will never be abandoned and forsaken because he was. We wake up to the reality of looking back at the cross on this side of resurrection and seeing that it is possible and not just possible for Christians. It will happen that darkness will turn to light. That pain can turn to purpose. That brokenness can turn to beauty. That ruin can turn to redemption. That tragedy can turn into triumph because death opens up new life. And Easter awakens us from our tendencies to be lulled to sleep by the lullabies of false hope and false freedoms that in the end lead us away from the power we confess is at work in the world and in us through the risen King Jesus. But some of us are just asleep. But Easter is a call to wake up. It's why I think Paul said in a different place in Romans chapter 13, another letter he wrote in verse 11, he said this. He said, to live like this is all the more urgent. Say urgent. There's an urgency to this. For time is running out, and you know it is a strategic hour in human history. It is time for us to, say it with me, wake up. For our salvation, our, our full salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Night's darkness is dissolving away as a new day of destiny dawns. Now, that's, that's Paul being all poetic. Here's what, here's what I think he's saying. That, that the violence and the fear and the anxiety that put Jesus on the cross that's at work in the world even now, that that way of life is going away. That's the night. That's the darkness that we stumble in and that we give into and that we think really does work in the world, which all it does is we learn that anxiety creates more anxiety. Fear creates more fear. Violence creates more violence. And we just begin to grasp. And and that world, Paul says, because of resurrection, that world is going away. It's dissolving. It's not gone We can't be singing songs like all of a sudden everything's gone. It's dissolving. It's still in existence. It still touches us. It still blows people up in Sri Lanka, but it is going away. We just have to choose because this is the day that has come. See, out of the darkness of Sunday morning came the risen Savior out of the tomb. It was in the morning that new life broke. Darkness had to pass. And that darkness is going away. That's what I think Paul is saying. He's just saying there's a new day. And so then he says, so we must once and for all strip away all, strip away what is done in the shadows of darkness. Do you like the language? The shadows of the darkness. That even though light has dawned, darkness still casts a shadow. It's still there. And he says, removing it like filthy clothes. And once and for all, we clothe ourselves with the radiance of light as our weapon. We must live honorably, surrounded by the light of this new day, not in the darkness of drunkenness and debauchery, not in promiscuity and sensuality, not being argumentative, which clearly this was written before Facebook, um, or jealous of others. Instead, fully immerse yourselves into into the Lord Jesus, the God's chosen King. And here's the thing. Don't waste even a moment, a moment's thought, on your former identity to awaken its selfish desires. This is God's way of saying live woke. like Live awake. Because Easter has come. And then the question is, like, how do we wake up? I mean, I find it easier to wake up with lots of coffee, right? Like, how do we live awakened within our soul? Well, I don't know about you, but I find it easier to live awake when I'm willing to ask myself a question that many of us, I'm not sure we ask. And that's what I asked earlier except a little different. It's the question of, like, what are you looking for? Like, like, stay with me for a minute. Like, for those who have confessed that Jesus is risen, do you live your life? Have you ever go through a day where you wake up and you say, what am I looking for? Like, if you track my life, my decisions and my priorities, like, what, what does it say that I'm looking for? for i feel like we we come looking for feel-good stuff on sundays we come looking for maybe the easter service to end so we can get to you know get to lunch we come looking for a colorful tie that we can wear because that's just kind of what you do on easter we come looking for things we come looking for all of these different things in our lives but we never even ask ourselves what it is we're looking for we don't ask And and I find that I live more awake to resurrection when I ask myself, what is it that I'm looking for? What am I looking for that I think can bring me hope? What am I looking for that I think can bring me peace? What am I looking for that I think can bring me happiness? Here's one. What am I looking for that I think can bring me security? Or what am I looking for that I think can bring me freedom or purpose or love? And Easter reminds us That humanity has always been looking for something. Matter of fact, it's it's very clever where it's found. If you look at uh, the Gospel of John, John does it this way. The first word spoken by Jesus in the Gospel of John is what are you looking for? But then the first word spoken by the resurrected Jesus in the Gospel of John is who is it that you're looking for? I think that's Scripture's clever way of saying this is a question that needs to be asked. Because we're all looking for something. And it's in that looking for something that we are often lulled away by other forms of love and power that captures our attention to what the Scripture calls the, da- the darkness or the old age or the reign of sin and death or the natural realm. Where other forms of love and power are at work. And these are the forms of power that lead to fear and anxiety and violence and, frankly, just plain meanness. And yet, Easter reminds us to look away, to fix our eyes on the Christ of the cross who could not stay dead and remember that something very specific happens in the Easter story. I believe Easter invites us to look to the joy of Jesus. See, there's a text in Hebrews, and it for those of us who are familiar with this text, maybe those of us who have grown up in church, we know that Hebrews chapter 11 is what we call the Faith Hall of Fame. Remember, it lists all those people who did all these extraordinary things that we could never do. Um, and these are the ones that get, you know, mentioned in the Bible. Um, you know, that's just kind of how it works. And then there's that part, remember, there's that part of Hebrews 11 that talks about all the things we don't want to talk about, like the people who it didn't end well for, you know? Um, Like, there's that, so we skip through that. And we skip through that and get to Hebrews 12, and that's where this is. And so, Hebrews 12, one begins with, um, therefore, since we're surrounded by all these witnesses, all these different stories, right? Uh, It says this, it says, we look away from the natural realm, and we fasten our gaze on the Jesus who birthed faith within us and who leads us forward into faith's completion, who leads us forward into faith's completion. But we, we have to ask, like, are we following, right? Like, what we're going to follow toward what we look at. Are we following? And then it says, his example is this. Because his heart was focused on the joy of knowing that you would be His. He endured the agony of the cross and conquered its humiliation and death and now sits exalted at the right hand of the throne of God. See, that's the thing about this text. It says then, so consider carefully all the hostility He endured from sinful people, then you won't become worn down and cave in under life's pressures and then later on in the same chapter in the same text it says therefore since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken say cannot be shaken it says let us be thankful by yet we may serve god acceptably with reverence and awe for our god is a consuming fire it says for the joy that was set before him it was the joy like, like when you think about Jesus on this cross, stripped naked with a crown of thorns, this, this this God-man, that's what we believe him to be, who did nothing but love people, who did nothing but love the people that the church of the day, the religious leaders, cast aside and said were not worthy of love, the lawbreakers, the sinners, the prostitutes, the lepers, the sick, the homeless, the displaced, all those, the poor, all those people that were not considered worthy of love, this God who put skin on, who came and loved them and touched them and was with them, he was stripped down naked crown of thorns beaten put on a cross and it says what kept him there and we often say love kept him there love kept him there no love led him there what kept him there was your was joy but what joy the joy of knowing that if he stayed there and he passes through death and enters into life that you will be his it was the joy of you like of you and the thing is, is I'm not one for this sort of me-centered Christianity thing where I look at it like, oh, Jesus loves me and died for me, and all that sort of thing. But the truth of this text is, you were his joy. Like, you were the one he was thinking of. Like, guess what the text says? For the joy that was set before him, this, he was able just to just endure it all because the one thing he thought about while he was on the cross was You. Because he knows what the alternative story does. He knows what power and fear and anxiety and violence does. He felt it in his hands and in his feet and on his head and in his body. He knows what shame is. And he knows what that offers. And he doesn't want you and I to keep thinking somehow that that's the way to go. And so he moves through that and opens up life from death and resurrection and what compels him, what compels him, what keeps him what stirs him, what moves him, what awakens him by the Spirit of God is the possibility of you. Like, our freedom is Jesus' joy. Man, like, freedom from these false freedoms that we think are freedom that at the end of the day just lead us back to that. Our forgiveness is his joy. These sort of things that we've done quietly that we would rather not tell a soul and we won't even utter toward God, even though God knows and sees it anyway and loves us despite it all. Like our forgiveness is his joy. Because our hope is his joy. Like he wants to rescue us from these misplaced hopes, man. Hope of a bigger bank account or a better spouse. A more obedient kids or the right degree or a different level of freedom. He wants to rescue us from that. Our hope is His joy because our wholeness is His joy and our love is His joy because if there's anything He does is He loves. And this God who loves takes joy and being loved by the ones he loves. You are his joy. And your citizenship in this kingdom that he is the king of, that will never be in trouble or ever be shaken, the idea that he could give that kingdom to you is his joy. When America becomes a footnote in the pages of history, because it has risen and it has fallen and all kingdoms do, all kingdoms do, there will be one kingdom that always remains. And it can be yours. But but it, it requires you your allegiance. I think that's why the language of Hebrews 12 says receiving. Look at the language of Hebrews 12. It says receiving the kingdom, receiving it. Not have received it, but active tense as in receiving it. And I don't know about you, but I find that when I'm looking for the wrong things, that I'm, that I'm doing this with my hands. Like I'm looking for the remote in the cracks of the couch that go deeper than I ever realized, right? That my son tucks in there some way that he can never find. And let's be honest that I can't find until I ask Allison because I can't find anything without asking Allison. So then it's Allison's. Actually, Allison's always pointing. I'm the one scurrying. She's like, there. And I'm scurrying. And I find that that my hands, I can't, I can't, you can't, you can't open your hands to receive something when they're busy looking for something else, You know, and you can't open your hands to receive something when they're already clinging tightly to something else. And it's the fact that we blow through resurrection, we want to blow through the cross so we can get to the resurrection, so we can sing these songs that make us feel good and realize that we're just leaving with songs in our hands, not the receiving of the kingdom of God in our hearts. And you've got to know, man, if there's nothing else you know, if you don't get anything else out of the day, is that for the joy that was set before Jesus that kept him on the cross to endure that and overcome the humiliation of death and to come back out of that grave and to look at us and to extend his hands to us is the fact that you, you were his joy. There's nothing you've ever done or will ever do that will change that. So I am, I'm the grandson of a missionary. My granddad is like 110 years old, and he's like 98, and he's still a missionary in South Africa in the bush, like the man's still like doing work in the bush of South Africa as a missionary at almost pushing a hundred, and I grew up with this man in a lot of ways, my dad was a deacon, he's now an elder in the church, but for about the first five years of my life my dad and mom walked away from the church because they got tired of the hypocrisy of the church. And so my granddad, this missionary man, and my grandmother, this missionary wife, there were times in my life where we lived with them, when my parents didn't have any place to go. And if there's one thing we did on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and Lord knows those gospel revival things, like where is like church all week long, revivals or what we call gospel meetings, is we went every time the doors were open. This is what you do. I mean, if it was church, you were there. And the thing about church growing up is it required church clothes, too. Y'all remember church clothes? We had play clothes and church clothes. At some point we grow up, we just kind of have clothes. Man, it was it was church. And I was raised in church. And what's 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 even greater still is when we moved away from grandma and uh, my grandma and granddad, we uh we moved to. Albany, Georgia again, and my Aunt Christine lived there. My Aunt Christine was my grandmother's sister, and it was a known fact that if we didn't go to her church, she would tell on us. So then, so like my mom and dad would always make sure we went to church, not because we just had this great passion for Jesus, but because we just didn't want to hear the wrath of my grandmother through my aunt. Right? You know you're like that. Like, you know sometimes you go to church because you got a relative who will tell on you if you don't. Like, I don't know if you have that. I had that. I grew up with that. All right, And that was like, that was church for us. But every time, that's what we did. I was raised in church, so much so that when I was going to college, my granddad, the missionary, called me and said, hey, you know, glad you're going to college. Hey, check it out. I've already called a church for you there. And I'm like, not in college. Like, no. Like, I did all this stuff growing up, man, like gospel meetings and all that. And and he said, yeah. He said they used to support us financially when we were in South Africa, and so they're expecting you. Well, here's the problem. His name is Fred, and that's my name too. So it's going to be impossible to miss. And so I'm like, who's the church? And he tells me the church, and I'm like, all right. So Saturday night comes, I'm in college, and Saturday night goes by really fast, if you know what I'm saying, and then Sunday afternoon comes, right? And that becomes sort of the rhythm of life for me all through college, was that way of life, like alcohol, drugs, like that was my thing, like that was what I did. And so, you know, I just miss Sunday morning church all the time, and then I miss Sunday night church because there was always things happening on Sunday night until one morning, my dad calls me and wakes me up on Sunday morning. And I forgot to say this, but on an Easter. And he says, I'm coming to Columbus and I'm going to go to church with you. And I was like, okay. He said, We'll go to that church you go to that used to support dad. And I'm like, okay. And so I start scurrying around the yellow pages. Okay, college students, yellow pages are these pages. <laughs> in this book. Okay. Yeah, so like so there like this I I start screwing through the yellow pages, right? And I get on the landline phone. There's a phone with a line, and, and, I, and I, call, I start calling to find out when these churches, services are, and, I, and, I, and I'm like, yeah, that, dad, that's, yeah, that, come and get me, that's my, that's my church, and so I'm going to go, and I'm going to fool my dad, right, because growing up in my church tradition, as long as you called everybody brother and sister, you were always okay. You didn't have to know people's names like, good morning, brother, <laughs> good morning, sister, and you know, when you're younger, you're always a young man, um, so I, I thought, I could handle this, right? So I go to this church, and I'm, like, going to bleed in and bleed out. And Dad and I, we sit in the back, and, I, you know, so far I'm able, like, good morning, brother, good, good morning, young man. And that was, it was all good. And we sit there, and then all of a sudden, and I forgot to mention this person, then all of a sudden they ask, if you're visiting with us, we'd like for you to stand. And I'm like, it's my church. And then, <laughs> then the people behind turn around and the people beside and around go, stand up, young man. Um, So then my dad beat me, and I was raised from the dead. And No, he didn't do that. And that was my life. Like, I knew to go to church. That's what you do. And years go on, right? And I get involved in church. I start finally going on Sunday morning. Certain things get out of my life just because I start growing up and realizing that the cost is just too high. And there was this prayer that my grandmother taught me. Growing up, before I go to bed every night, no matter how wild a night I had, I always had enough sobriety in me to pray this prayer. You may know the prayer. Here I lay me down to sleep. I pray thee, Lord, my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake. Like, I prayed the Lord my soul. Today. Like, I, like, I had to have fire insurance no matter what that night was. So I prayed that prayer every night of my life. And then I started going to church more regularly. And over the course of time, these church appearances began to awaken me to the reality of something that's changed me ever since. And it's not, not profound. It was just like I heard God ask, what are you looking for? And see, what I figured out was if God really created life and He was really the creator of love, then maybe He actually knows best how life should work and how love should work. Because I would tried life and love on my own terms and it kept shaking out into that same prayer that was driven out of fear every night of my life. I was much more afraid of dying than I was of living. And it wasn't until I came head to head with resurrection that i become much more committed to living despite the ridiculous reality that at some point, somehow, I'm going to kick it. Doctors tell me that one out of one people die. It's just, it's just what happens. And I can either live my life with death in mind or I can live my life with life in mind. And I can either live my life with death in mind with me as king, or I can live my life with life in mind with Jesus as king. I can either live my life staked on some other joy that's not really a joy at all, or I can live my life realizing that it was the joy that was set before Jesus that kept him there and that pushed him to the grave to endure that life, that distance, that separation, to be risen again, and to realize that even in my stupidity and in my ignorance and willful, disobedient, rebellious heart, that even while I prayed those prayers at night, squirmed during those church services, that even still, I was Jesus' joy. And at some point, I just had to wake up to it. I hope that the day you wake up to it, too. I hope you see that in the crucified and risen Jesus, you are the joy He has in mind. To really know whether or not you believe that, you have to ask the question: What am I looking for? What am I looking for? Better yet, who am I looking for? Every week we gather as a church we actually come to the table to consider the merits of that question. Jesus made a promise statement to his disciples when he instituted this supper. He said, I'm not going to take this with you again until the kingdom comes. Well, the kingdom is broken and it not come in its fullness yet, but it is coming and has come. And Jesus is here. He's here at the table ready to welcome all of us, any of us, even the Judases among us, to welcome him, to welcome you, to welcome me to the Christ who sets us free.